Hey folks, it's Jared. Today I'm joined by Steve Carmel and we're going to go deep on an article he wrote for SimSec about the U.S.'s dangerous lack of tanker capacity in the event of conflict. This episode was edited and produced by Jonathan Selling. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters, whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean. Chances are there's a SimSec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of local chapters and contact information on our website at simsec.org. So if you're interested, please reach out and get involved. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network, the Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drac, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Hello, Hashimates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Stephen Carmel, and we're going to be discussing his article for SimSec, Tankers for the Pacific Fight, a Crisis in Capability. So, Steve, welcome. Could you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself, please? Hey, good morning, Jared, and uh, thank you very much for having me. Again, Steve Carmel. I'm Senior Vice President uh, with Merceline Limited, and and right out of the gate, i got to say, anything I say today is my opinion, not that of my employers, especially since I don't have an employer editor here to tone down what I say. So this is my opinion, not that of my employer. I actually started out as a, as a master on tankers myself. So I went to sea for a long time in uh, as tank, on tankers. And I've been with Maersk since then in a variety of positions. And I also have worn a few Navy hats in, in my career. I was on the CNO executive panel for a long time and uh, the Navy studies board and uh, Marine board and um, did a, did a quick, with Noah. So kind of kind of both sides of the fence, but I've been in this business uh, studying this tanker issue for a long time. Well, thank you so much for coming aboard. Uh, as a reminder, the listeners will throw on the, the institutional disclaimer there. All opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution or company with which we might be otherwise associated. So Steve, what's the actual U.S. tanker capacity and the expected capacity required in a conflict? So we'll start with the actual capacity we have, and, and we'll go with the uh, two versions. I'm going to quickly divert into the Jones Act because people tend to bring up the Jones Act tankers as available for for the fight. They are not. The Jones Act fleet, there's 43 basically MR sized tankers in the Jones Act fleet, but they're fully consumed uh in taking care of the domestic economy. The pipeline system in the US is 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 at capacity. It's chock a block. We cannot afford to be pulling those tankers away without damaging the American uh, economy and, and fuel consumption. And it's not just gas in people's cars, you know, that's power generation and all, all kinds of stuff. So those ships, those, those ships are off limits. I would note too, because there's some inter- interesting dynamics going on here. There's another 11 tankers in the, in the Alaskan crude fleet. And uh, uh, it's interesting to note, I think, that the Alaskan tankers that that pull Alaskan crude down from from you know from there to the to the lower 48, uh, those guys are actually aging out. Of the 11, nine are going to age out in the next two years or so. And when those charters expire, uh, there's nobody building replacement ships. Those are Jones Act ships, and when those ships ex- when those charters expire. Uh, that's all going to be outflagged in one of the most catastrophic blunders in maritime policy in in history. I think we let the crude act, the uh, crude uh, export ban ex, uh, uh, go without putting cargo preference in place on the oil that's going to be exported. What all this boils down to is, as those charters expire, 
They're going to get replaced by foreign flagships, and Alaskan crude is going to get exported, every drop of it. And that for as long as Alaska remains viable, which who knows how long, it's not going to be long before the pipeline doesn't have the throughput to keep it open. But at any rate, so the Alaskan crude is going to get exported and those ships are going to go away. And where that matters, obviously, cruise ships are not good for military. They're too big and they carry crew. And so that's a problem. Where it matters is jobs. That's a lot of, of tanker qualified people that are going to lose their jobs. And we are already at crisis level there as well. Uh, so. That is not a good situation at all, and and no one, especially Marriott, seems to be paying attention to it, which is, you know, bad. Uh, the other thing on the 43 Jones Act tankers on the domestic, on the lower 48 side, those are largely crew, uh, um, carrying product, but they're getting old too, and they're going to start aging out in the next five to ten years, and when they do, uh, they're going to be gone too, and there's no domestic building program going. If we start today, if I started today, I think I couldn't get a tanker in the water for eight years. And so that's a crisis that's coming that needs to be paid attention to. And again, it, it comes down to jobs. So on the, on the international side where we could actually get capacity we need, there's about six. Uh, that's how many MSC has control of right now. Some of them in the spot market and uh, some of them on long-term charter. So figure six. How many do we need? Uh, in my article, I cited a, a study by Tim Walton at Hudson uh, that pegged the number at 86. Uh, there's actually a hard number available. It's, it's classified, uh, but uh, Transcom and uh, MSC have actual numbers, and in, in, um, the number is well north of 86, but over 100, because there's a variety of types that are required. And, and Tim didn't touch on them all. Uh, so, so you figure the gap, let's, for, for argument's sake or discussion's sake, the number is a hundred and we have six. So it's a pretty substantial gap. And, and, um, you know, every war game I've ever done, you quickly end up burning fairy dust because you just run out of fuel. And even a nuclear aircraft carrier, I don't, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, nuclear aircraft carriers don't need fuel. Well, you know, I, I disagree with that, but the airplanes do. And without airplanes, an aircraft carrier is nothing more than a giant target. What access problems oil would the U.S. face in the event of a potential conflict with China? Access to oil. As, we, as, as we've seen, the um, thing in, in uh, the Ukraine has roiled international tanker markets and, and, and oil markets. And the same thing would happen with a conflict in China magnified a 100 times. So, uh, you know, the Chinese are major consumers of, of oil. And so they have access to or, or, or hands deeply into the international uh, oil infrastructure around the world, including, you know, we talk about the Singapore, the refineries in Singapore. There's three. Two of them are Chinese owned. Um, in addition, you know, the Australia has basically done away with its refining capacity altogether. Uh, I think there may be 200,000 barrels a day or something of refining capacity left. Anyway, that's gone. And the Chinese um, rely on on Asian refineries for their fuel supplies. I think I read a study that said uh, the country of Australia would be out of fuel in about a month uh, if if a war with China cut those off. So all all look all everyone's looking to the Middle East for for molecules of oil. That's the same oil that the Europeans are looking for to replace Russian oil and gas and so everyone's starting to compete for the same for the same molecules of oil and uh dpa doesn't defense production act doesn't apply overseas you know refiners are going to sell the oil to who they want to uh 
or dependent on her ownership structure, who they're allowed to. There's a pretty cozy relationship between China and a lot of Middle Eastern countries. And we, you know, the Chinese do not hesitate to use the influence and relationships they have built up over the years uh, to get what they want. They, they expect something in the long haul for the money that they have invested in places. And that's going to be one of them. And it's hard to predict ultimately where it's going to go. But let's also not forget in the broader scheme of things, a war between the United States and China is going to be catastrophic for the global economy. Supply chains are going to be scrambled everywhere. And one of the big ones, as we know right at the moment, is microprocessors and chips. And you're not going to find too many refineries that run without microprocessors and chips. And that supply chain is going to get shut down. So it's really hard to say. Uh, We may have just a global capacity crunch because refineries start shutting down because they can't get the stuff they need to run uh, due to the supply chain problems. So you touched on a little bit of this answer earlier. Um, but maybe you can ex- expand it further. What types of tankers does the U.S. have, and then what does it need to acquire? So there's three big things that they uh, tanker types that the military would require uh, in in such a conflict. Uh, the one that everyone focuses on right out of the gate are the long haul uh, tankers that get stuff from where it is to where it needs to be. Um, again, assuming that you're going to lose access to all refineries. In Asia, uh, the safe bet is that the United States will have to start stringing together supply chains of oil that come from the states or at least this side of the world. So that's a really long haul uh, for tankers. And and the right size for those is what's called MRs, you know, the 330,000 barrel, 46,000 to 50,000 ton ton ships, uh, uh, clean product. And so that's number one. And there's a lot of those required because of the long haul. And they they don't uh, carry fuel just for the Navy. There's also the Army and the Air Force, and it's different. You know, the Air Force and the Army use different types of jet fuel than the Navy does. Uh, so, uh, you know, you also, Navy just uses DFM, but you also have for the Army and the, and the Air Force uh, motor fuel and, and different types of diesel. So there's a variety of products are going to be required and and that's the long haul guys got to get it from where it is in the states to to the theater then the navy also is going to require uh console tankers and that those are tankers that are fitted to be able to transfer fuel at sea to unwrap oilers and the, the idea here is that you don't want the oilers leaving the battle group you want to be able to refuel them fairly close to being where they're being used. And so you have these these tankers, uh, commercial tankers doing a long, long leg and getting into theater and through console operations, refueling uh, the unrep oilers. And you figure that an average MR size tanker could probably refuel an oiler two and a half to three times before the uh, console tankers got to leave. And then the last type is the intra-theater lift. Those are the small guys um, that move stuff around in, in distributed maritime operations. You know, these small expeditionary bases require fuel, and you're not going to bring a 50,000-ton tanker into some undeveloped port. That requires a smaller, shallow draft, uh, more self-sustaining type of ship. And so you need a whole pile of those uh that can do intra theater distribution. 
Uh, right at the moment, MSC has two of those on charter, and uh, I again, not getting into specific numbers, but it's a lot more than two uh, that they require. So um, the, what they need and what they have access to are vastly different. And, you know, hats off to MSC. I think they fully grasp the nature of the problem and are moving out aggressively to at least study it and understand it. They've run two war games so far, have another one coming up in March to deal with this to understand the problem and, and start to get a grip on what we really need. But, you know, I think we've lost a bubble a little bit on time frame. We all know the uh, Air Mobility Command commanders uh, note that we, he thinks we're going to be in a war in 2025. Certainly made news all over the world. Uh, I think Admiral Davidson said 2027. The point is, we don't have forever to get this solved. Uh, you know, we have inside uh, this decade, which is rapidly drawn to a close. Uh, and so... This is not a problem set that can can go decades for a solution. We ha we need a solution in place in years. And so that brings the next issue up. It's not just ships. It's crew. Uh, we are already desperately short of mariners. And that problem is made way worse because a tanker mariner, particularly deck officers, is not the same as a dry cargo guy. Tanker guys require extra... Uh, certificates and and uh, experience deck officers in particular and so if you're qualified to sail on a container ship you are not necessarily qualified to sail on a tanker the other way is true if you're a tanker guy you can sail anything uh, and so we are desperately short of people so just throwing just throwing um, uh, uh, ships at it isn't just the answer either you need to grow the guys that that can actually sail them, and that takes time. And so we needed to be started on this yesterday to get the ships and the people growing together. It's a system, and uh, we, we we haven't done that. And um, just to give you an idea of how complicated this can be in the international, I did a study a little while back um, on some on on the nature of the foreign flag ships sitting in the Gulf waiting to load. And one ship in particular caught my attention. It had a a British flag on it, um, uh, uh, registered in IOM, ma'am. So it's a British flag. The only Brit on there was the captain. Everyone else was Russian. And so the international tanker market is is way more complicated than most appreciate. <laughs> so anyway. Well, I got a couple of follow-ups on that. Then uh, if you have a minute to go off script here a little. Uh, sure. First, the sure. console oilers. Um, as you're describing the console oilers, the, the first thing that came to mind is kind of the ships taken up from trade during the Falklands War. Is there any sort of American planning going on like that to identify civilian ships that could conceivably be used for that and like what we would need to do to convert those? And it's probably not even American hulls that we're talking about at this point. It's probably like allies and partners because the American merchant marine is kind of laughably small at this point. It's, it's true. And so... Uh, the first thing I, I want to point out is allies and partners, countries don't own and run tankers. Companies do, right? And they're international companies and their commercial relationships. If you're an international company uh, headquartered in Europe, your commercial relationships are oriented east, right? And you're going to want to preserve those. You've got to take a bet on who's going to win. Win meaning ultimately the political victory in our commercial relationships and um, where the the avenues for horizontal escalation here 
are extreme. And I don't think anyone in military planning uh, uh, does enough justice to what that what that means for for commercial companies. So we need to bear that's a big factor. No one factors in. The conversion itself is relatively minor in that the it's low technology. A tripod is a tripod. Uh, we we've done it several times. Probably the bigger issue is the loose gear that goes with them. Swivels, pelican hooks, riding lines, all that stuff. It's a very long uh, lead time to buy that stuff. In some cases, some of that stuff takes a year to get. So, and is there studies being done? You know, do I, I think those studies, to the extent they're being done, and it's not really big, are worthless 10 seconds after they're done because asset trading is kind of normal in the international space. So guys are buying and selling tankers all the time. And the other thing you have to understand, uh, once again, is owner, flag, and crew, all that stuff is disjointed completely. And so if I say that that uh, Scorpio Tankers, which is a New York listed company, owns a ship, that doesn't mean they own the ship uh, uh, because they could own it, quote unquote, be the despondent owner. And the true owner is a Chinese financial house on a sale leaseback arrangement. Right. And so that is prevalent. And after the financial collapse in, in 2007, 2008, Western banks largely abandoned marine financing in China, which views the marine ecosystem the way it should be done, which is a giant system. There's all different parts of it, and they all have to be treated together, and China does that. Uh, they moved into marine finance in a big way. And so it's very difficult uh, to find a tanker sometimes that does not ultimately have Chinese control in it somewhere. Uh, so, so that's a – go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just had a follow-up question there because you, I think you're assuming that I know more about this than you do. And like, if if I'm not following it, uh, there's a good chance the listeners are either. You talk about what did you mean by despondent owner? I've never heard that phrase before. So uh, a despondent owner is somebody that shows up on the on the uh, certificates of ownership because they are a bareboat charterer, and that's a specific type of charter where the true asset owner is a financial house or something like that. They're not an operator. They're just an asset owner. And in fact, the airline industry is a little bit like this too. Asset owners, you know, who owns a Boeing plane that's got a KLM on the tail? You know, who knows? It may not be KLM, probably a bank. So the owner is a financial house. Often it's Chinese these days and they call and, and we do what's called a bareboat charter where whoever then takes control of the ship has the rights of ownership to some extent. And so they're called a despondent owner they're fully responsible for the ship they maintain it and and all that um they're responsible for crewing it uh, uh everything uh, full rights of ownership except the, the the true owner the financial house and owner that actually owns it maintains some rights of control over the ship so that's the difference between a true owner and a despondent owner is where the money comes from so then what's the difference between assured and assumed access and how's military planning for one or the other of those? Well, assumed access, uh, like it's, like, in, like it, it says, government assumes there are a pile of assumptions behind the actual availability of a ship. That means that the government doesn't control it and they are assuming that whoever owns it would be willing to cooperate with the government. 
in a time of war and make it available. And, you know, I've seen things where studies have gone out and they send a poll to, to various foreign owners and said, in the event of a war, would you be willing to make your ship available to the United States? And of course they're going to say yes. You know, only a nut job would say no to something like that because you don't want to lock off any of your potential avenues for business down the road. So they're going to say yes to that. And you don't know if they'll actually do it until the time comes. You say, I want the ship. And they're going to say yes or no. And you won't know until assumptions are by default true until they're not. And when they're not, it's because you've actually asked for the to operationalize the assumptions and they turn out to be not so true. So, and there's a lot of things that have to go into the availability of a tanker beyond that. For instance, unlike dry cargo ships, there's a very complicated and rigid uh, cargo compatibility matrix that DLA Energy has that says, if I've carried some type of cargo, uh, I cannot carry military cargo behind it. So, uh, just because there's a tanker of the right size and you have an owner that's the right pedigree and you trust them to actually show up when you ask them to, if they've been carrying um, a, a particular type of cargo, biodiesel, it's called a fame cargo, but uh, uh, biodiesel uh, uh, has fame in it, which is really bad for jet fuel. And it leaches into into uh, coatings and, and it'll leach back out when you put jet fuel in it. So if that ship has carried that cargo, they can't carry jet fuel. And so it's that sort of availability uh, also uh, has to be factored into things. A short access means that um, the government knows that if they call a ship, it'll show up. And it's because they have a hook. There's a hook into the owner of the ship that can't be gotten away from. And U.S. flag does that. First, in order to be, be a U.S. flag, unlike many other uh, flags around the world, in order to be a U.S. flag, you've got to be a U.S. citizen, a true U.S. company. The officer's got to be U.S. citizens, which means if you shirk on your duties, you go to jail, that sort of thing. And so the government has the hook they need to compel, uh, Defense Production Act being one of them. Defense Production Act doesn't apply anywhere else. Uh, people like to, may want to say it does, but it doesn't. So that's the real difference. You know that when you are called and uh, uh, you can, in, in some cases, put the types of restrictions on where the ship is or what it does, that means that it's going to be ready to go when it shows up. You can require that the right kinds of gear be on board, that sort of thing. The U.S. is fooling around with it, but has not gotten remotely close uh, to to being able to do it. The, the tanker security program, the TSP, in theory, is supposed to address that. In practice, the tanker security program is one of the most badly crafted programs I've ever seen in my life. It cannot do what it's designed to do. In fact, it says, people say it's going to produce uh, 10 new tankers, and and even if it actually worked the way it was designed to, it can't do that. It simply can't. I don't know why people say that. People that should know better. Uh, the best it could do, if it actually worked right, was produce five ships. Um, but it does, it's not going to work right, and so it's actually going to fail. Uh, so we haven't figured out yet how to get there. And, and so in my article, I say there's no identifiable path. And that's why TSP is the only thing at hand right at the moment, uh, and it's not going to work. There are other things that could be done. And, and let me say this right out of to start, too. 
any program like this that I'm talking about is really it's a it's it's a stopgap. It should be viewed as a stopgap band-aid because we don't have a, a coherent actionable national maritime strategy that addresses the importance of the maritime industry uh the way it should be and it, it it's and and that's a it's a real tragedy we have other national we've decided that the chip industry is a true national security issue and have thrown money and programs and everything else at making sure we develop a a, a semiconductor industry in this country now i've talked about that in other forums there's a long way to go in 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 getting that where it needs to be but the fact is we've addressed it we've said the the uh, semiconductor industry is important. It's a national security issue, and we're going to do what it takes to support that industry. There's nothing like that in the United States. So it, nothing that treats the maritime industry as a system that we need to nurture because it's a national security imperative. So everything we're talking about here are stopgaps. And unfortunately for the maritime industry, we have come to take the stopgap band-aids as a final solution. We put something in that that, you know, may or may not work. And basically, in the history of this industry, they haven't worked. Uh, and we walk away and the industry just keeps, you know, getting worse and worse and worse. I would recommend the book Abandoned Oceans if no one's read it. It's an outstanding book on 200 years of failed maritime policy in this country. So we, we are not remotely close to doing things, but I mentioned right out of the, at the start, we let the, the crude oil export ban go and didn't put cargo preference in behind it. If we had put cargo preference in when, if we had said, we're going to, we're going to repeal the crude oil export ban, but oh, by the way, that's all got to be exported on U.S. flagships. You know, you'd have a fleet of 20, 25 tankers right now. And again, crude oil ships are not right for military service, but the people that'll sail in them are. And we would, we would not be staring at the crisis in people that we're staring at right now. Uh, so that that's all part of treating this like a system that we're not doing. There are certainly other things we could do, and and DLA Energy could do one of them right now. If we just said we're going to source, we're going to treat the supply chain for oil for the Westpac fight the way it really will be in the fight, which is means we're not going to source the oil from refineries in Korea or Japan or 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 Singapore. We're going to start sourcing that oil from where the Chinese can't get missiles to it, which is largely the United States, that alone would, again, you know, solve a major chunk of the problem and get the supply chain right in the meantime. And you got to do this in a way that doesn't royal markets. The markets all have to have time to adjust the U.S. domestic production. And, and we export so much oil. Last number I saw, we were exporting 1.4 million barrels a day, a day of uh refined product just out of the gulf all right so it's not like this country isn't producing enough oil to be able to say we're going to reserve some of that for the u.s military if you said uh, uh all um uh, uh refined product exports out of the united states and stage it because again we have to grow the ships and the people um but but back into it if we said it's all going to go on u.s flag ships you know you basically solve the problem with the right kinds of ships and um and the U.S. military is not paying for it till they actually need the ships. Uh, uh, the consumers of the foreign oil are, are, are paying for it. So there's a lot of things we could be doing. Again, stopgap measures until a, a true maritime policy comes into effect. Uh, but no one's thinking that way. Instead, 
you know, the, the TSP, which is, like I said, it's a failure is the only thing that, that seems to be being considered right now. So I'll ask a final question again off script. I think you kind of answered uh, what we had planned for there, but um, is the industrial capacity exists to build the ships that you're talking about here? Or are we just talking about purchasing these from overseas for the most part, uh, if we're going to um, do it quickly? And then same question on the training side, because I'm, I'm aware of all the different maritime academies that we have, but I don't know that the throughput <clears throat> is sufficient to produce the number of people that we need to crew these ships. Uh, I think there is a lot of partner capacity there when I've, you know, been out at sea doing my queries and whatever. I, I know there are a lot of Russians that go to sea, but man, there are a lot of Filipinos who do too, uh, who, you know, are with an allied nation. So, um, yep. yeah, your thoughts on that. Um, so no, the, the industrial capacity doesn't exist to do it quickly or for that matter in a way that's cost effective we're talking about buying the ships uh foreign farm built and bringing them in um does the u.s shipbuilding industry need to 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 factor into a broader maritime policy you bet and again we need to treat this as a system but uh just saying the ships have to be u.s built isn't going to do it it's going to take too long and it's going to be too expensive until we figure out how to build ships how to build ships correctly uh, in this country. So um, it, it's another prong of a maritime strategy that needs to be be addressed. So we're talking about buying uh, ships built overseas. And again, we only have a couple of years to do this. I said, if we start, if I wanted today uh, to build a tanker in the United States, it wouldn't be in the water for eight years. And by that time, the war is going to be over. In terms of building people, that also is something that needs to get done quickly. I, I, you know, you mentioned allied and, mer- and, and uh, partners, that kind of stuff. Again, they, you know, people are not the same as governments. And we got to get out of that mindset that just because the Filipino government uh, supports what we do, that doesn't mean the Filipino people do or they're going to be willing to get on U.S. flag ships and get shot at over uh, uh, something that they, you know, I, if you went to to the you know, to, to your average crewing center in the Philippines and asked how many Filipino seamen are going to say, are, are you willing to die to keep Taiwan from becoming part of mainland China? What do you think the response is going to be? Uh, I don't think it's going to be, yeah, sign me up for that job. Um, so you're right. It does, we need to, we need to, we need to grow the people. And there are a number of ways that could, that could be done, um, uh, leveraging allied partners and, and people. Uh, one is, uh, per, for instance, maybe a stipend that offset the cost of, of U.S. seamen so that they could sail on partner foreign flagships to get the right ticket. You know, that sort of thing uh, uh, could get could get done. Um, throughput out of the academies, it's it's throughput out of the academies is an issue, but it's that's not the only that's not the only thing. Unless they have ships to sail on, uh, you know, they're not going to have the right tickets and they're not going to have the right jobs. And and frankly, we need to, you know, one of the problems I have with uh, Kings Point in particular, my alma mater is, what is it, uh, 30, 40 percent of the graduates go active duty? It doesn't say uh, the United States uh, Academy for any service going on the gate. But I'm sorry, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Steve Carmel. Steve, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? You know, I don't actually maintain a, a social media presence. Um, I've always found uh, social media be 
a, a little bit dangerous, but uh, people are free to email me with questions uh, anytime. I happily respond to anything. Um, aside from the tanker uh, tanker issue, I spend a lot of time. My, my real passion is is uh, the Arctic, and lately expanding that a little bit I, uh, to 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 polar studies. I think we have done a disservice by not paying enough attention to what's going on uh, in Antarctica, and, and we're probably going to regret that. Uh, down the road, but I study a lot about the Arctic, and, and I'll say right now the Northern Sea Route, uh, contrary to what everyone thinks, is is not going to be useful for international trade for a very long time. It's useful for what it does now, and that's it. Um, and of course, energy uh, energy issues uh, in particular, and uh, alternative where where the future of energy is uh, globally is another thing I work on a lot. Well, thank you again for joining us, Steve. To the listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.